welcome to Forcing Function Hour, a conversation series exploring the boundaries of peak performance. Join me, Chris Sparks, as I interview elite performers to reveal principles, systems, and strategies for achieving a competitive edge in business. If you are an executive or investor ready to take yourself to the next level, download my workbook at experimentwithoutlimits.com. For all episodes and show notes, go to forcingfunctionhour.com. Today, I'm joined by Milan Ackerman. Milan is the CEO of MPAC Entertainment and the artist manager for rap superstar Russ. Now, if you're not a hip hop fan, that name might not mean a lot to you, but this is a big deal. Russ is a multi-platinum selling artist with over 6 billion streams. Russ recently landed in Forbes list of top 20 hip hop earners. Our topic for today is the business of music. Milan has been successful as a music promoter, a booking agent, a tour manager, an artist manager, and now he is the CEO of an artist management company. Today, Milan will be sharing his strategies for breaking through the noise, no matter what industry you are in. Today, we're going to be exploring how to leverage the internet so that you can build your personal brand online, what it means to make it today in music and in media, how to reverse engineer your dreams, and a day in the life of the manager of a touring superstar. Without further ado, enjoy this conversation with Milan Ackerman. Absolutely, bro. Thanks for having me and thanks for getting this out of me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start by learning a little bit about you, how you got here. What role does music play in your life? Oh man, music's a huge part of my life. Always has been. Hip hop has been a huge part of my life. So I that's kind of how I came up. I was just super interested in getting involved in the music business. I didn't know how. And I think it started, the itch was, I, I saw this Drake show. So I grew up in Winnipeg, Canada, what I think is a small city. But uh, you know, if you look back, 700,000 people live there. So it's a pretty, pretty decent sized city. But I saw Drake perform at this small venue before he put out his debut album. And it was like, uh, that's what hit me. I was like, I have to do this. I wanted to do that exact same thing the next summer. So I figured out throughout that whole year how to do it. And by the next summer, I had produced my first show. So I really got into doing this by playing every role. And the first role was the only role I could think of by getting into the music industry was I got to bring a rapper to my city. That's that's what I thought. And so <laughs> it took me some time. I tried a little bit before, but was unsuccessful. But that summer when I saw Drake's show, I was I was I had this ambition like I've never had before to make this happen. So that was kind of like the first itch that I had to make things shake. And then I, that summer I had produced my first show, which was absolutely, you know, the most successful show I think that's happened in that city that it was so successful I had to do a second show in the same week. So, but that there's a lot of things leading up to it that got me there and a lot of failures beforehand that I'm not even I haven't touched on that made that whole thing happen. So, but yeah, music's been a huge part of my life. My grandparents play music. My whole family's been in the music, not music business, but have been musical their whole lives. So it's, it's just been a part of me. You know, I've been playing piano since I've been a kid. Spin, my mom's been had music in the house, you know, so it's just been a huge part of me. Tell me about producing that first show in Winnipeg. You're guaranteeing tickets, you're putting your reputation, your capital on the line. Who knows who's going to show up, how it's going to go. What's going through your mind at this point? Okay, so let me just take, have a caveat to that, where my first show, first show was like about a year before that. 
and it was like the biggest failure ever. So I had gotten in touch with this artist that I was obsessed with and I was able to book him and bring him to my city for a couple grand. And a couple grand at the time was like a million dollars to me. You know, it was like, it was a lot of money to just give to an artist to come here and book the venue. So that failed miserably. I had like 50 people come, all my friends and stuff, but but I've never, I've had always had enthusiasm with failing just because I wasn't the best student in school. I just knew it from a young age. So I was like, I was failing in high school, you know, like I was like work marks wise. So for me, it was kind of like failing wasn't an issue, you know? So I did that. I failed with enthusiasm. I picked back up and I was like, I got to do it again. So I saw that concert, I had the itch and I'm not a, I was never a promoter. I was just like this, I'm a kid with a dream. So my dream was to put on this show. So I had found this, this venue I wanted to do with that in the city and I put down a deposit, like 500 bucks. And I remember my parents co-signed on a, on a line of credit for me. So I was writing a check from a line of credit. So I didn't even have, I had just enough cash to pay the artist a deposit. And so I had basically had the show up on sale with the deposit. It was Mac Miller. So Mac Miller was like, at the time, he was the hottest commodity. But I think a lot of people didn't see it coming. Like I knew it was happening, but because I, I heard a lot of my friends and and people in the community talking about it. But I don't think the big time promoters like Live Nation or AEG, it wasn't really on their radar. So I got in touch with his agent. I was persistent as shit, like really, really persistent to a point where he called me one day and he was like, you're the most persistent dude I've ever met in my life. And he's like, I'm going to give you this show. And if you, if you mess it up, you're blackballed. So I kind of had that, that dark energy on my shoulders where I was like, if I don't do this right, for any reason, like I'll never do this again. So that was, I needed that from him and me and him ended up working many, many more times, you know, but that gave me the, the inspiration to like, okay, I'm going to go put everything on the line here and I'm, I'm going to take the risk of my life and do it right. So yeah, I wasn't promoter. I put this up on Facebook. I made like a, a group, you know, like one of those event groups and sent it to all my friends. And within 24 hours, I think the show sold out within less than 24 hours. And, you know, I made, I doubled my money that I was going to invest. And it was so successful that the agent called me and he was like, you want to do a second show? So I was like, I don't have the, re-, you know, of course I said, of course I will. So I didn't have the resources to do a second show. So just to break it down for anyone who doesn't know how this, this works, you need to have cash, you need to have capital, right? To be able to like cover deposits, guarantees, production, so that was my first time really raising money. I had to go to a friend of mine that I was always kind of in my in my ear, like, hey, I'm the money guy. I have money. I was like the idea guy. So I was lucky to have a friend at the time who, who was willing to bankroll the second show. And I brought him in as a partner. And it, it gave me the experience of like, first time raising money. You know, now you have not only your money, but you got your friend's money you're responsible for. And at the time, my brother, who's now a partner in my business, worked with me you know, every day and he's part of the company. I was 19, he was 16 or 15 turning 16. And he had a little bit of money in like a savings that my parents were control were like investing. We both had bar mitzvahs. So we kind we basically used our bar mitzvah money. Like our parents were like, this is for school. And when I knew I wasn't going to school, I convinced my mom to like, mom, I'm being an entrepreneur. So I need my money so I can go flip my money. So I convinced, I pitched my mom, convinced my mom to let my brother invest in the show. And so I had my brother invest, my friend invest, and we made it happen, man. And we sold the second show out as soon as it went up on sale. So that was like the pivotal changing moment of my life where 
this was actually a reality. So I'm like dealing with agents, dealing with managers of the artists, dealing with the artists direct, and now learning how to like, how to interact with them, you know, because you're on eggshells really the whole time. You first time doing it, but, but you know, this is the star that you look up to. You're just nervous to be around them. So just how to, how to communicate, how to deal with it. What are they looking for? So yeah, that was like my first real trial and error of getting into the music business. What an incredible story of self-belief. And I think this thread of persistence really is a common one for your successes and what you and Russ have been able to pull off together. And someone really needed to take a chance on you, needed to believe that you could do something that you hadn't pulled off before. And you took full advantage of that opportunity and used it to propel yourself into an industry that you know, at the time, maybe you had no business being in, but once you've done it once, it's Absolutely. very easy to do it again. Exactly. And, you know, the same, the same effect. So like, it wasn't just this one agent, because you can't, just because you have friends, you have a relationship with one agent doesn't mean you've made it, right? So there was this legendary agent, her name is Kara Lewis. She's like the most powerful agent in the world. She was doing Eminem and Kanye West. So that's who I was always trying to get in touch with, because she always had the biggest hardest. So I was trying to figure out for years how to get in touch with her. Fast forward, I work with her. I've been working with her for seven years now. And she she's the agent of Russ. So she's like, you know, I've worked with her throughout his whole career and prior. But that's one of those things where I would hit her up every day and her assistant to a point where I started to figure out, whoa, wait a second, she won't answer my emails, but the assistant will. So I gotta be I gotta make friends with the assistant. So I would do everything from Man, I would I used I sent flowers one time to the assistant. Like I would do anything just to just to get a response. So back then no one would take me serious. I was like pretending I was much bigger than I I was. You kind of have to fake it till you make it. But by the time that she took me serious, it was like I had already done a few shows, you know, and she had a client that that was coming through Canada and she let me bid on it. So it was kind of like the one of those things where I planted the seed years before and by the time that it was okay i had this like small little tree that sprouted she gave me an opportunity and i had the the framework in place to actually see it through and then after that you know me and her i would go to new york and i'd go meet with her and she really gave me an opportunity and then fast forward almost been working a decade and you know has really been one of the pivotal factors of like you know russ being able to have such a a strong touring career is we worked with her from the beginning using our data. We're analytic driven. So we would tell her, Hey, this is where the streams are coming from. And she would, she would get us a venue in the market and an offer and we'd go play it. So she believed in us super early, but she believed in me early too. I just had to prove it, you know, kind of like anything people knock at my door all day, but you know, unless I've seen them knock a few times, I probably won't, I probably won't pay attention to be honest. And it's not, it has nothing you know, nothing against them. It just, sometimes you need to be so persistent where you knock the door down to a point where it's like, like that agent, you know, circle back and said to me, you're the most persistent dude I've ever met. It's almost annoying them so much that they can't get rid of you, that they have to acknowledge you. So that's kind of been, it's been, you know, my whole career up until where I had the framework to basically base things off of. But yeah, that's like the, the initial start. But where do you think this drive, this persistence comes from? I mean, it's certainly not the natural default. What what do you think sets you apart? 
Well, I think honestly, it came from failing. It's getting used to failing is the best way of explaining it. It's not being concerned about what other people think. I used to, maybe maybe at, when I was younger, I cared a lot what other people were thinking. And then I think there was, I can, I'm trying to think back of like, was it one time that the switch flipped? I think it was honestly like failing enough times where I knew failing was kind of like the default setting. So I was almost like, you know, I can imagine with you, you publicly speak a lot. You know, I don't as much. So if I, if I had to go speak in front of a, you know, a hundred people, it would probably take me a second to feel a bit comfortable. You know, like I'd be nervous and not, not that I'm nervous right now, but it's like, this is the first time I'm doing something like this. So, but me and you, me and you have a friend, we're friends outside of this. So you and I, it's easy to have a conversation with you, but it's getting comfortable being uncomfortable. So as soon as I was able to be comfortable being uncomfortable, I think that's when everything kind of just started to unravel for me. And I learned from a young age of like, I am a serial entrepreneur and that comes with kind of like the ADD mentality of I want to do everything. So it's like, I have all these other opportunities that are coming in at that time and I'm trying to do them too while I'm doing this. And I'm realizing that they're failing because I'm not able to put 100% of my my time and energy into it. So as soon as I put 100% of my time and energy into something, that's when that's when I hit the the jackpot. And I realized that. So same thing with Russ. When I found Russ, I put 100% of my everything into him and I haven't looked back, you know, 7 years later, 6 and a half years later. How did the two of you guys connect? Tell me about the early days of your guys' relationship. Sure. Yeah, so we connected on the internet, you know, beautiful internet where a friend of mine had sent me I think it was his SoundCloud. He had 11 albums, independent albums that he had put out prior to me even knowing about them. So a friend of mine, I was kind of in the hustle game of trying to, I was trying to find Russ. That makes sense. I was, my goal, I was super inspired by guys like Scooter Braun, who had found a guy like Justin Bieber. You know, he was an absolute nothing and took him all the way to create a, you know, him into a legacy act. So that was always one of my goals. So when I found Russ, I knew right away that he was an anomaly just because he produced everything himself. He wrote everything himself. He engineered everything himself. He even did the mixing and mastering. And for me, that was like, I hadn't seen that since Kanye West, you know, and even Kanye has a lot of people around him. So I was like, I haven't even seen this ever. And his beats sounded like Dr. Dre beats, but his, he's very melodic. So he was able to like switch back and forth from rap to R&B. And that, that's something that I knew right away. I was like, this is, this is it. So I reached out to Russ and yeah, the internet, so I kind of sent him an email, a cold email, and then received one back. And then there was an opportunity to link up and I had flown him. I was living in Toronto at the time. I had flown him to Toronto to get in the studio and just kind of meet with me and hang out with me for a weekend. So that was the first time we met was like probably three, four months after I reached out. And then about seven months after that is where him and I actually really sat down. We're like, let's, let's do this and let's take it all the way. Why do you think it was so important that you guys were friends before business partners? The, the movies would tell you, hey, you, you find this great talent and immediately try to get them into the boardroom and get some ink on the paper. But with you guys, it was very much getting to know each other before working together. Why, why was that so important? Well, I think that was super important to him. It was important to me, too. I realized it over time, like I didn't want to rush into this, just like I, just like anything, like I learned from experience. So by that time I had already been kind of, I'd say I'm 11 years into this, in the music business. So I started my first show was 2010 as an, so 
you know, 11, 12 years. So I was about five years into this, you know, with experience. I already been on the road with artists. I was managing other artists at the time. So he was a very unique person where he, he didn't like titles. He had trust, technically trust issues at the beginning, but he was just smart. He's like me. He's like, he knew that there was a lot of snakes out in this business and there's a lot of people trying to leech off of future success. And I think it was important for him to build the friendship and trust prior for me too. And once I knew that I was like, you know, that's all I wanted. I wasn't trying to really, I knew I wasn't going to make money off of this for a while. I was fortunate where I had worked and saved enough money where I knew I had like, let's say six months of, I didn't need to make money for six months. I'd saved, banked up enough money where I was like, if things don't work out in these next six months, well, I'll go back to the drawing board, you know? So it was nice where I had a bit of a cushion at the time. The cushion back then is way different than I would think of, you know, like looking back, I'm like, that was still a huge risk, you know? But yeah, like little things like flying him certain places and helping covering hotels and going, I use my resources to like, we met with different lawyers and we met with business managers. So I wanted him to make sure that his finances were right. You know, all the technicalities behind it were right. And he had his legal team right prior to even doing business with a label, with a publisher, with an agent or myself. So the first and foremost was like, hey, the first thing he said to me was like, why do I need a business manager? I don't have money. You know, like I don't even have the money yet. So I was like, you'd be surprised because when the money comes in, it's just going to flow. It's going to be, it's going to be like light speed. You won't even know what hits you. So he's blessed now that that's, that's the case. But at the time it was a struggle even getting him to trust financial, you know, accountants to even be opening up accounts and starting companies for him. So, but that was like, you know, already about six months into our relationship. But I just think that me and him, we knew how big this was going to become. And we just wanted to make sure that we were the right fit. And there was times where we had butt heads on a couple of things because he had he had wanted things at the time that he thought were important that weren't. You know, like same for me, like in my world where it's like you want to be the biggest thing ever, but you're over here. So an example would be he had a thousand followers, right? But he wanted like Billboard to do a story on him, right? Or he wanted this blog to talk about this. And it's kind of the reality check of of like, well, it's going to come, but that's not what's going to change the outcome of your success or get you fans. You know, I think over time he realized that he chased a lot of these, he would inquire, he would send emails and this is before my time with him, but he would hit up all these different blogs telling him, listen to my music, you know, can you support a post? And then you fast forward a few years out later when people started to catch on to the music, the music just spoke for itself. He realized that it was never about them. It was always about, you know, the people. And now you look back, it's like they just support organically. But a lot of these guys who didn't support kind of look crazy because they have emails from him, you know, begging them to, to listen to their music and to support. And they look back like, damn, like I didn't support you. And there was kind of like, you know, there was a sour taste in his mouth for a long time as to like, you know, well, why didn't you? And I think he grew and understood that like, you know, this is what we all go through, man. This is this is the tsunami of like, you, they aren't going to really support you until you you prove you're worthy of it. And so it's like my, if you build it, they'll come. So we just built this this massive enterprise, and and I think now there's nothing you can't 
not do to support it. Like it's just, it's in your face and you can't do anything about it. That's like my mentality. Even with, with the shows, it's like, I wanted to work with these big promoters. The only way to get there was to show them that I could do it myself, you know? So yeah. And then they all started to come and wanted to work with me. And that's when I realized this wasn't for me. This was not the business. The promoting business was not for me. So yeah, before we get into management, I mean, promoting is herding cats, right? You, you plant a flag, hey, this thing is happening and you got to fill the room. What did you learn from that experience about how to fill the room? I think a lot comes down to the product. So who's the product that you're, like the artist, right? But like, what are you selling? And if you didn't have a following like myself, like I didn't have a big social media following or anything. So it was like, how do I put people on to understand that this is even happening? So I found people who had the followings and I would involve them in my, in my show. So, you know, you were a local promoter and you had, you know, 3000 people that follow your list or follow your, your text list or your, your social media, I'd bring them on and I'd figure out a way to, you know, make them a partner in the show. If it's like, I'll give you 300 tickets or you make money with me. So I was, I had to really do some growth hacks, you know? And I think a lot of it too was, um, I, there was a bunch after where I failed too, where it's like I broke even and I didn't make money, but I was strictly going off of like the product itself. I was using Facebook and I was spending, I was doing like Facebook ads and stuff like that. So I was learning that it was actually cheap to spend on ads back then versus it is now today. But I also think it's, it's a lot of, I was doing a lot of digital stuff and a lot of people weren't. So in 2010, I already had, I was selling tickets from my own website. So I partnered with a local ticket company because Ticketmaster takes like these $10, $12 fees. And I wanted a piece of that too, you know, cause I was trying to, I was trying to cover my bottom line because I knew that my margins weren't so, so high. So I partnered with a local company and they basically were like, we don't do any ticket surcharges, you know, but you can do a surcharge, you know, you could charge three bucks and that goes in your pocket. So I was like, oh damn. So then I, I figured out, I partnered with them. I hosted everything from my own website. It was like mpacentertainment.com. And I sold tickets from there. So I was building my IP from the beginning. And then once I started to see all the clicks come in, I was kind of like, I was doing everything where I was even selling ads on my website, you know? So I had figured out other ways to hack the system to make some extra money to pay for the things that I didn't necessarily have, you know, like, like the promotional resources and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I kind of, I knew that going into it that I had no clout when it came to, to doing this. I was kind of like, I'm that new kid and no one really takes me serious. But you know, another, another caveat to that is this kid had reached out to me. He was like 16 at the time. He was in high school and he's like, Hey, I could sell 300 tickets for you. I was like, Oh shit. So I gave this kid a shot and he sold more than 300, sold 500 tickets, like from his school, just from social media and all these different things. So I gave him an opportunity. He was the only promoter that sold tickets at that show. I just felt it in my gut. I was like, I want to give this kid an opportunity and maybe, maybe I can mentor him to also become, you know, get into this business. So that was his passion. He ended up getting into it. Fast forward 10 years later, he works for my management company. He's on the road with me. He's coming on tour in three weeks or two weeks when we're on, on the road. And he's like our executive assistant. And it's just, you know, I'm blessed to be able to, to have him involved and, and part of the team now. Where back in the day, he was just this kid who reached out to me, a cold email, just like that, how I was, persistent. So I saw I saw myself in him and gave him an opportunity. And now he works with me full time. So crazy. Deliver results. People will find a spot for you. 
Man, this notion of, of what are you selling, I think applies to a lot is thinking about when you're trying to get someone to buy in, it's what's, what exactly is that, that product. So you're transitioning to management at this point. Tell me a little bit about the early days. Yeah, I'll tell you. So I, I transitioned from promoting shows to booking shows. So I had met a couple people on the East Coast that were doing the same thing. So I had along the way of I would say just like mastering the game. It's like mastermind. So I had my brother who was also super passionate. So me and him would just bounce these ideas off each other. And I had found out, okay, these are the clubs in every city that do the shows, right? So I got to find out who are the talent buyers. So I found out who the talent buyers were. And I basically reverse engineered it where I was like, hey, I'm now talking with this agent. I can sell you the show because I have the show here. So I ended up booking the shows across Canada instead of just locally. So I built a little booking agency, nothing crazy. You know, like I, w- I probably did like 10 shows a year, which was like enough to like, I made a good, li- I was making a decent living off of it. And one of the artists that I had booked, I had gone on the road with, like I basically was like, it was my biggest one. And I was like, I rent the car, I've driven, I was even driving them a couple cities. Like I was driving a Sprinter van. I was like the tour manager. They didn't have a tour representative. I was booking the hotels. I just needed to, it was like, you know, the movie, get him to the Greek. Yeah. With Jonah Hill. It was literally that I had to just make sure that I got this guy to the show, every show. So I was like, I'll do anything. I'll fly with him, whatever. So I took all the money I made off of the commissions of selling the shows and I reinvested it by putting myself on the road. And that stemmed into the artist basically saying, yo, I want you to come on this tour with me. So I ended up going with him to Europe and then I had gone, you know, in America. And then by that time, I was like, I got to move to LA. My aunt lived in LA. She would let me stay with her off and on. And then at that time I was like, I think it, I think I got to be in LA just as this is like kind of where everything's happening. So I went from like promoting shows to booking shows to now I'm on the road with artists, you know, and I think the word just spread. So that led to another artist who was like, Hey, come with me. Hey, can you help me with this? And then I think a lot of people started to realize, Whoa, you, you are really good at like communicating. And you're great at emails and the back end, you know, you know so much about the business behind it. I was like, well, I did everything, you know, leading up to this, I, I kind of learned it all myself. I went to school in my, I gave myself schooling. You know, I, I was on the internet every day. I was, I was researching. I was just keeping my data and, you know, kind of basing everything off of historical work that I had done. And like, that's how I'd move forward. I'd like anything I didn't know, I'd figure it out. So I'd, I had some good mentors in my life that were kind of helping. They were entrepreneurs and they were, they were helping me. A lot of them were like, what the hell are you doing? They didn't understand it. But that, that really gave me the enthusiasm to be like, nah, <laughs> like I can do this. Anyone who was kind of hating on what I was doing, I knew right away that's like, I was here for a reason. Yeah. It does seem to me that having done all of the aspects is very helpful when you start to build an organization, when you start to manage, because at a certain point, you can't handle all these details yourself. So having worked on the promoting side, having worked on the booking side, having gone on tour, you could have the processes in place, firsthand knowledge of how things should be done, to be able to communicate those to the people who are on the ground floor execution and keep yourself out of those executional details, you can focus on maintaining the big picture. It's interesting to see this pattern where a lot of these early experiences become very complementary, where a lot of the opportunity 
resides at the intersections of having all these different experiences together. Is that something that you found as well? Absolutely. That's actually what like makes me a better CEO today for my company and for Russ's company is everything that led up to this. That for me is what creates the magic. You know, I think no one could fool me. No one can fool us when it comes to the back end of the business because I've played all the roles. So I think that's a definite yes. And like on the touring side, it started off with me and him. So it was just like me and him would go on the road. Then we brought a videographer, then we brought security, but having the experience of like, this is how the show actually gets created from the ground up, from like booking the artist to producing the show, to marketing the show, to actually like when the people are in the venue, even keeping them safe, you know, from the security aspect to like, there's just so much to it to actually settling after and being able to pay the artists out. Like, how does it all work? So the most important thing to me was to articulate that to Russ when I started working with him. So he understood from the ground up how this all works. So I think he noticed from a, from a really, from even the first show, because, you know, I, I really instilled with him, it's all based on capacity and ticket prices. So you can never, you know, you see artists out here saying they're making all this money. And that's, that's cool and all, because a lot of artists can just go to a club and pick up, you know, a big bag. But what's really important in the touring business is what's the capacity of the show and how much is the ticket price, right? So if it's a $400 for 400 cap venue and the ticket price is 20, it's eight grand that you can gross, right? So as a promoter, you can't think you're going to make 10 grand if you're just grossing eight grand right? You can't afford to pay the artist eight grand. If your gross is eight grand, you can probably afford to pay three, you know, 2,500 four, cause all the expenses that, that make it up. So we would receive offers and they would seem low, but if you break it down, this is why they are this, you know? So him and I weren't afraid to go do a hundred cat venue in Glasgow that paid us 200 bucks, you know, because we knew, Hey, if we go put a hundred, people in this room next time we'll be able to put 300 you know so we based our entire hard ticket touring off of that we started from literally nothing like it was like 300 tickets in la it's moved all the way up to sixteen thousand today you know so it went from 300 to that sold out to 600 to 2500 to 5000 and then we made a big leap where it was like 5000 to so we did two 5000 shows at the time to staples center 13000 and now he's playing the Hollywood Bowl for 16000 But that all, I find that the more shows you do, they domino effect into the next. So a lot of people are afraid to, hey, I'm going to go do the show. And it might not just, I put 500 people. Maybe next time it's not going to be 500. It's going to be 300. So let's do the same room. No, the goal is to you keep the same ticket price and you scale up, you know, and you use your historical data uh, to base, you know, where you should be touring and, and how you should be receiving and, and vetting offers. So a lot of it came from like understanding the business behind shows and understanding, okay, this is what you pay for like production, like sound and lights, right? Some venues come with sound and lights. So they call that a house nut. You got to pay for like the rent of the house nut. Some venues don't, right? So you're going to have to bring in sound and lights and this is what it costs. And this is what it costs to make your show look extravagant, right? And it affects your bottom line. So we were always running tour budgets from the beginning. And that was super significant to me of like knowing, okay, what's your net? Knowing how much everything costs. 
what actually makes a show on the back end with like expenses and ticket prices and capacities is like that's really important when it comes to touring. It's not like how much am I going to make. It's really based off of like, hey, what's the framework of this? And then we we kind of we approach it like that. Unless it's a a radio show or or you know a private show where they have a a sponsor that just comes in with with some money, then you have to look at it differently. But when it comes down to you know, us doing a hard ticket show is really based off of analytics and, and data. Yeah, what comes across to me is just you look at a tour and every single show is a project in its own, a separate partnership, separate budget, separate constraints, things you have to work with and deal and different people to collaborate, different factors, different constraints. And there's a lot of details that need to be thought about, planned, a lot of boxes to check. You personally, how do you keep track of all the millions of things that are happening on a tour, for example? How do, how do you keep the details straight? So I have a great team. We've scaled. You know, I have a tour manager. I have a production manager. So there's about 38 of us on the road now. So it's like, it's insane. There's like nine on the production side. There's like seven techs. We we bring our own sound, our own lights, our own stage. But it started off where we would just come with me and a laptop, me, Russ, and a laptop. So times have changed, but we create tour budgets. But more so, I think tech, between tech and just having the great, the right resources in place now, everything seems to just be very fluid and, and not all over the place. So there's a really cool piece of tech that I wish I had started or invested in called Master Tour. Genius. And it allows you the whole tour to use this app. You load your schedule in there. You you have all the all the details of a tour are in this one platform and everyone has access to from like load in, load outs, schedule to, you know, just different things. If you know, depending on what your role is, you can basically go in there and it's all accessible for you in that one app. So tech helps, but also just having a right team in place, you know, and that took years to really develop. But, you know, a lot of it is just, you have a schedule that you have to follow, getting used to being really punctual and kind of embracing that schedule and understanding that that's part of the flow. just like anything like, you know, like working out every day or whatever you plan on doing, you have a show that day, but like there's certain things that lead up to it. So sound check, very important, you know, because you don't want to just jump out to a crowd of thousands of people and, you know, potentially everything is, it could be any flaw or anything's messed up. So that's important. The load in specific time is very important. The, the time you leave the venue or the city the night before is really important. Rest, obviously eating is really important. So there's a lot of things, but I've scaled it out where I have a great staff now and it allows me to still manage the business while being on the road. I'm no longer playing 10 different hats on the road. I get to be myself and I, you know, I travel with Russ everywhere, but it just allows me to like, you know, still manage the inflow of calls and emails and inquiries as we're flowing on the road and and doing, you know, a million things at once. We're talking about roles, having some really good specialists now on the team. If you had to define your role as manager in one sentence, how would you do that? CEO. There are a lot of people that make up this, you know, this success, but I would just say I am still as persistent as I've ever been. I'm more ambitious than I've ever been. And I'm living 
I just am conscious of the fact that I'm living the dream, my dream, which is, you know, I'm doing this for real. Like I'm literally in, it's tough to, when you're in it to kind of press the pause button and look around you and see like, Whoa, this is what we created. But I'm, I have such gratitude for that every day. So I, I start my day off hundred percent with like the gratitude of like, you know, it's less pressure, you know, it's more like being the captain of your own ship is just like, there is a lot of pressure, but it's, it's the most gratitude I ever had. Cause that's all I ever wanted. And I'm just blessed that, yeah, that, that I understand the landscape of everything that we're doing. And now I can basically, as I scale this out with staff, with other team members that we start to bring on other artists, other, you know, whatever it is, you know, producers that we were talking about earlier, I can apply the same structure to that in their business. But yeah, it's like, you know, I think CEO would say that just because sometimes, you know, you can't, you have to put out fires, but you can't really, you're not dealing with everything anymore. Like super hands-on, like sometimes it's going through people before it comes to me. So it's really just like making sure that you have the right people in place. That That's as important as, as anything, I feel like, because we're all about integrity. My biggest I don't want to say fear, but like the biggest pet peeve is, is being blindsided with something. So I try to avoid getting blindsided. And I think a lot of that is asking the right questions, right? Being conscious of the landscape of like, I'm already thinking of all the blindsided things that could happen, that being on the road, that being, you know, during the day, like even before getting on this call or, you know, doing, doing this, this convo, I, I had already put out some fires today, but I had done it in a, in a way of like, I knew I had this commitment. So I basically, I've manipulated my schedule today to kind of revolve around this and to give myself the free time. Obviously there's calls that come in and different things, but I have certain people in place that are, that are doing the things right now that I may have had to do. And that just comes from like giving people some trust without giving them the benefit of the doubt. And, and then once they've earned it, kind of putting them in place. So a lot of it is, yeah, CEO, the situation at all times. I'd love to expand on that in terms of the role of the CEO. At Forcing Function, I like to think that the CEO has two things that only the CEO can do, no one else. And the first one is the vision, is laying out a really defined, specific, articulate vision of where the organization, where the company is going, what those steps are to get there, and to anticipate what could take us off track. I mentioned the not getting blindsided. If we were to not achieve this vision, what would that reason be? The second, I'd say, is resource allocation, where at any time, there is just unlimited opportunities to pursue with very limited resources, time, attention, personnel with which to pursue those opportunities. So needing to decide what opportunities have the highest potential ROI. So I know, I know for you, it's no different. There's so many things that you guys could be doing as an artist, as an organization, and needing to be very particular about what you choose to pursue how do you keep Russ focused? How do you keep your team focused on that vision? I think, yeah, this definite aim, I think, is is like how we keep everyone focused is knowing what we're doing this for realistically. And like the definite aim can be, it could be multiple things, but I think it's like the common goal of like, this is what we're trying to achieve. And we reverse engineer everything 
from there? Like, how do we get there? And like, what makes up that definite aim? So an example would be a number one, like our definite aim currently is a number one billboard record, like a number one single on the billboard Hot 100. So wild story. This was a conference, you know, we started the year, we start the year off always with like a new definite aim. This year it was that. This was the year that Russ wanted to break into the the hot 100 as an independent artist and get the number one song. So that's a huge feat for us because I don't think it's been done, to be honest. I, I have to go look at the historical data uh, for an independent artist. I don't think it's been done, but regardless if it's been done or not, we're going to make it happen. And a lot of that comes from, there's two things. It's okay. What makes up a number one song, right? So, you know, it comes from stream sales, radio, you know, you got to have a big record, but a lot of it comes from the energy that goes into manifesting what you're looking to achieve. So that's what we were looking to achieve. So instead of shooting duds, you know, like before we would just release a ton of songs and we just kind of let the universe, you know, do its thing. Like hear the songs and have fun. It's like you guys, you know, if, if one goes crazy and blows up, great. If it doesn't, great. We're going to keep putting on music, right? So that's one thing that Russ has never been you know, afraid to do is just put his best foot forward. And he makes a, an abundance of music. So he just puts it out and he lets his fan base consume it. And then they dictate which is the, they elect what's the single. So we use a lot of the data to base our decisions off of, right? So if a song is doing really well, that's where the marketing budget will go. So we kind of did things a little bit different this time. We, with definite aim, we knew we wanted to achieve this number one song. So instead of shooting the duds, we're going to basically figure out, okay, what is the, we're going to release songs that we know are, we're going to take bigger swings. Instead of swinging for first base, we're actually going to swing for the grand slam. And then by swinging for the grand slam, you got to get someone on first base, second base and third. Right. And you got to hit that out of the park. So it's really just lining the things up. And, and a lot of that is, do you have the right resources in place? Like right? do you have the right digital marketing team in place. Do you have the right radio team in place? You know, do you have the right mindset headspace in place? So we started the year off with that headspace. He decided, Hey, this is my goal. He's done everything from quit drinking. He's now watching what he eats. So he's changed his diet completely. He's lost 20 pounds. He's measuring his macros. He's basically on a calorie, he's calorie deficient. So he's basically watching everything he eats. He weighs everything. So we're applying the same elements to like his career, right? The right decisions when it comes to the press looks or the this op or that op and making sure that when we do trying things out and understanding like the data drives everything. So he put a song out on, on TikTok, it started to go crazy. The fans are demanding it. That's when we'll put the song out, right? So we put the song out. It's doing extremely well now. Fast forward from the definite aim combo, three months later, we got the number one digital sales song of the week, like three weeks ago. So it's not the number one billboard song, but it's the number one digital sales on the billboard. So that's never happened ever in his career. So just an example of like how quick this energy can get reciprocated is that was all manifested. Like, that's all like, this is what we want to do world, you know? And I don't care what's in our way. We're going to, we're going to get there. We're going to figure it out. And a lot of it is like reverse engineering. So finding out like, okay, in order to get the biggest, the most sales or the most streams, you need to have X amount of, so it's got to be going crazy over here. It's got, you got to take it to radio, radio uh, accounts for like 60% of the billboard charts. 
right? So if you don't have your, if your songs on a radio, how can you, how can you think that you're even going to accomplish that, right? So when we're doing budgets at the beginning of the year, like allocating X amount for radio, X amount for digital marketing and, you know, oh, the song's reacting over here. Well, you know, put some money into it over here versus over here because we'd be shooting duds over here, you know? So a lot of it is, yeah, I think I may have gone off course a little bit, but it's definite aim and not taking your, your eyes off the, off the prize. And, you know, it might take years for it to happen. It might never happen. Right. But that's not how we feel like internally, like every day we think today's the day. And I think that's how you always have to be. And he's, he's felt that way since before he would walk into a, a label meeting and he'd tell these, you know, these labels that this is going platinum, you know, I'm going to have a debut platinum album. I'm going to have seven platinum songs off the album. And they're looking at him crazy, like crazy. You've never even, you don't even have a song with a million streams yet, you know? And, you know, fast forward a couple of years later, debut album, platinum, seven songs, platinum from the debut album. So he's taught me a lot when it comes to like manifestation, because shit's real. Like I was, I was doing it before I met him, but ever since I tapped in with him, Kind of like whenever he goes, whenever he says something like that, I'm a man. I believe in him more than I think he believes in himself sometimes. So it's like you need that, like a a, man, a partnership management thing. A relationship needs to be like that too. You can't just have a manager who's just like, you know, he barely picks up the phone when you call. He's not like invested. He's not, there's nothing enthusiastic about what you're doing to him. You're just another notch on the belt. That's never going to work. You need to, me and him 1000% believe in everything we're doing all the way. And we want to be the best at what we're doing. We want to, we want to win the most Grammys. We want to have the most billboard hot 100 records. But yeah, I think that that's like the starting point of anything. You just need to have the definite aim and you have to have delusion. Like I'm still delusional, even though I'm successful. <laughs> I'm so delusional. Like some of the things that I'm thinking about being, you had a conversation, I think in Mexico, and you asked me one of the things I wanted to accomplish. What did I tell you, Chris? You're going to be a pilot by the end of the year. Is that I what I told you? Yeah. Yeah. So that's like a dream of mine since I was a kid. So it's like, yeah, like, you know, fast forward now, I'm like, I did buy a couple lessons, you know, but like, that's just going to come from me getting over my fear. I also did tell you that I didn't want to, I hated the Cessnas. So I hate flying those little planes, but to become a pilot, I'm going to have to get through it. So that's some, some shit that I'm planning on doing this year. I love it because, hey, we could talk about self-belief and where that line is between being delusional and confident, which has often been discussed amongst artists that made it, that you need to have, no one's going to believe in yourself unless you do. But I think that what's really instructional from that amazing example you shared of the definite aim for the year is once you have this ambitious goal in mind, that allows you to work backwards from it. So just like the, okay, we're celebrating at the end of the year that you are a pilot. Okay, let's, let's work backwards. What are the things that you needed to do in order to become a pilot? You were successful. What did you do? Well, you had to take, you had to get your flight time in, right? If you want to fly a private jet, you need to learn how to fly a Cessna first. So even if you don't want to fly the Cessna, that's a necessary step to get there. So once you decide that, hey, I am doing this thing, I'm okay with paying the costs, all of those things associated with them, we call instrumental. 
and we you pointed out some of the things hey if we want to make a number one hit all right we need to be on radio there's no question we need to be healthy doing all the things physically mentally so that we can sustain the level of pace and effort that it's going to take to have this promotion to like get this level of collaboration in place that once you have this vision you can work backward and say all right now here are the steps that we need to take to get there so such a such a powerful exercise and certainly knowing that you have done the planning the work to get there allows you to sustain the self-belief it is less it's less fragile when the inevitable ups and downs come absolutely yeah i'm dealing with you know there's a couple of projects that i'm working on right now where i've never done this in my life and i can share one you know as an example russ wanted to start a hair care line this is for many years he's wanted to start a hair care line his fans have asked him for many years, like, what's your hair care routine? That's like his biggest sell. He's got this long curly hair. And he decided about a year and a half ago, I want to do this, right? So me and him have never done this before. As an entrepreneur, I know I can do it. I don't necessarily, I didn't really have all the resources in place. You know, so I went out on a limb and I started cold calling some, you know, some people that I that I knew were in the manufacturing business. We had created this definite aim within. I would say literally two, two, three months, I'm sitting at a friend's house who kind of brings everyone. He's a, he's the type of guy that brings everyone together. Right. So just has really cool random people at his house. So we're at his house, we're just hanging out, chopping up and someone there happens to be a private label manufacturer does exactly what I'm looking to do. So me and him just start talking. He introduces me, doesn't even realize that I'm in this business. I'm, I'm, this is something that I'm looking to do. So just by having that in my head, you know, manifesting that I'm like, Hey, I take that as a sign. So I mean him, we lock in two, three days later, I have Russ at his factory telling him we're talking about the idea. Two, three months after that, we already have a formula, you know, we're creating a signature formula. And, you know, two, three months after that, we were designing bottles, we're, you know, building a website. And, you know, about a month after that, I just happened to meet a friend of mine who was working over at Yeezy now is working over at Shopify and Shopify created a brand new program called the creator program. And they are in the market to power visions like products and visions that artists have, you know, and influencers have. So that came together as just like a started off as an idea, put started off manifesting it, putting our best foot forward. It wasn't, I'm not hundred percent in it because I can't be, but it's like 20%, you know, where it's like 20% of my time goes towards this. Fast forward, now Shopify is a partner in this venture that we're talking about. And, you know, I'm having conversations with 3PL companies, which is like, you know, third party, like their logistics, which is like, they're picking up our bottles from our manufacturer, which comes from overseas. The manufacturer fills it. Then they're putting it in their factory. They fulfill everything. Everything is like integrated with Shopify. So I'm out here, this music business executive, you know, manager, but I'm also play part-time entrepreneur. And I'm out here building, you know, a hair care company, a lifestyle company. And I've never, I've never done manufacturing in my life, you know, so this is all within a year timeframe. And I think it's a lot of it starts with the definite aim of, Hey, this is what we're trying to do. This is what we're trying to accomplish and using everything that I've done leading up till now to reverse engineer what I want to do. So like learning from experience, you know, like even on this journey that I'm telling you about, there's already been failures, you know, there's already been things where I'm like, damn, 
could have saved money there. I could have done this different. And next time I'll do it differently. And a lot of it just comes down to, again, I have to play CEO because there's like four or five different parts and you kind of have to integrate them together here. And we're finally getting to the finish line where we're going to launch it this summer, two years later. But yeah, I've never, I've never done manufacturing before. I've never created a product from the ground up. So this is just an example of like definite aim and just using your, your mind and your, you know, your resources to just pull everything together. One of my favorite beliefs is that the universe is conspiring in our favor, that if we know what we're looking for, we'll recognize the opportunity when it's right in front of us. These opportunities are already there. We just don't recognize them. So I truly, I truly believe that. For. Yeah. I feel like sometimes we're just like fogged. We, we have like this like haze around us and we don't realize it's like, it's, sometimes it's right in front of us. And I think that's where the gratitude is having gratitude every day comes in. And it could just be any, like I meditate, but not as much. You know, I think I have other forms of meditation. Like for me, like meditating could just be like, I have an old, old school car. So it just could be like taking 10 minutes and just driving in it solo. Don't have my phone on me just, you know, and that's where I can think best, but understanding that sometimes these things are right in front of you and you're just not paying attention. And so like, I try to tap into that energy every day. That's like my biggest thing every day. It's like, I feel like you are the same way, but it's like, if I can learn something new every day, man, that's, that's all I'm really looking to accomplish. You know? So much of the game is just the attitude of getting yourself in the state of mind, having the presence necessary to, you know, be your best self. And yeah, I really believe that our, our best ideas rarely come to us at the desk that just by living our lives, doing what we love, being with the people we love, that things will present themselves in due time. I have to get a little bit of the day in the life. So, you know, you just came back from UK, you were over there for two days, you're about yeah. to go on this tour global person. tour, 65 yeah. cities, 20. Oh, yeah. so as the world. So like this year is crazy for me because it starts off, I have six weeks coming up and then we have like the summer off and then another three months on the road. Yeah. So a day in the life would be like this morning, just an example. So I got up pretty early, like 9 a.m. is early for me. I'm usually like a 10 a.m. riser, maybe like 11, just because I'm usually up till like 3 a.m. the night before. I like to get my emails and work done when everyone's a little bit quiet, silent. It allows me to just, I just flow a lot better that way. But um, I play multiple different hats. So, you know, this morning I'm on the phone with radio. I'm on the phone with... Uh, agent. I'm on the phone with my production team. I'm on the phone with, I had a PR call this morning. So a lot of it is just, you know, day in the life is I'm working virtually. So I get to, I'm home right now. I'm in Atlanta in my office, but these things can be done when I'm at a coffee shop, you know, or when I'm in the car on the way to the coffee shop. So a lot of it is it just being on 24 seven and not just not being afraid to just like run through everything. Cause sometimes it's, it's stressful. I'm not going to lie where three, four people want to talk to you at the same time, you know? So I've learned to say no a lot more recently. That's like the biggest, one of the biggest like hurdles for me was to like actually put my foot down and be like, no, you know, or like compartmentalize things. Cause I want to, I want to do everything at once and, and I'll burn out if I do. So yeah, day in my life could just be like me, traveling the world, like going to the U going to UK. We shot a video in the UK, randomly did some press to getting back home to going right back into the game of, you know, a million things going on to like, now we're on tour 
And you got to make sure your client is at this place at this time. And he's got this at this time. And then you're also balancing the inflow of business and calls, you know, like excited, like as I'm on the phone with you, or as we're on the call, I like look down at my phone and there's like this sync opportunity that just came in very exciting. Like his new song is getting synced for like the NBA and, you know, the playoffs are, are happening. So I'm really excited about it. But it's like something like that, boom, as soon as we get off the phone, I'm going to call my client and just run him through the specifics of the deal. And, you know, but that's exciting, you know, it's exciting stuff. But so it's, I'm always kind of like at the edge of my seat and that that's what, that's what keeps me going. It kind of feels like you just did 10 push-ups or 20 push-ups, you know, you have that flow. So I kind of like my day is usually ups and downs of that. So you mentioned before you've gone from, you know, a thousand followers to something crazy, like 3 million. You've been really early to all these different social media platforms. It's been a real way that Russ has authentically connected with fans. You talk about how analytics driven you guys are. What comes to mind in terms of like building an online based brand, particularly a brand that's based around a person? You know, what, what do you think works in today's environment? You need to understand your like who you are and like what's your identity, right? And then like also authenticity wins every time. You can tell when someone's trying and when someone's not, you know, just being themselves and not being afraid to experiment. So like TikTok is a good example. TikTok was, I think for a lot of people, it's one of those platforms that it seems complicated. If you just got TikTok, you've no idea how it works. You know, it's a very unique algorithm that is in the favor of if you like a piece of content, like if I go onto someone's profile and I, it's like this person's a musician, right? An acoustic plays guitar and I scroll through their profile, I will start receiving more of those types of content on my feed. So like my feed will be consumed with up and coming artists if I go down the up and coming artists rabbit hole. So that's on the back end of learning how the platform works, right? So if you understand that, now you're going to understand how to how people find your profile, you know, or you. So a lot of it is like trial and error. So I think when Russ got onto TikTok, he was very like his good friend Gary V was telling him for many years like you should get on here, you should get on here. And he just didn't understand like what what content should I make on here? You know, should I just post what I posted on Instagram? And then over time experimenting, you got a little bit, you got more comfortable with how the platform works itself and what works for him. It's not really like what works for everyone else. It's what works for you, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean going viral. It just means like, what am I, what's my identity on this platform? And if it's really, it's just my authentic self. And then we learned that that's how you break music. You know, TikTok's a great platform for breaking music. Instagram is great for showcasing your art, right? TikTok is where you can really be yourself. You can really show the raw, uncut authenticity behind what makes the music, what makes this, you know, answering questions. You can be vulnerable. So I think as a consumer, I, I really want to see the true, the true self of the artist or the influencer. And I get turned off personally when, they're, when it's fake, when it's like they're trying to be something that they aren't, you know, it's like, you don't need to put on all the, you know, the chains and the look just to be on the platform. You're okay just being you. So yeah, he, he started from nothing. I think what happened was as the music grew, everything grew. So it started from SoundCloud. SoundCloud is a platform where you can just upload your music instantly and you can share it with the world. So that gave him the stepping stone to do so. Like, hey, I made a song, now it's out. And then over time, 
Spotify and Apple Music, you know, they were at their early stages around the time he had started putting on music. So they started to grow and then that would go back and forth. So, you know, Shazam's directly correlate to Apple Music and TikTok directly correlates to Apple Music. They have like an integration partnership with Apple. So if you're getting streams on TikTok or views on TikTok, it's going to correlate to your music streams on Apple. So just understanding the dynamics of like, hey, Instagram might be the platform to like showcase what I'm doing in my artistry. And, you know, that's where I can stunt and kind of like where you can be fake. TikTok is like the more authentic and just understanding that Twitter is where I just vocalize my thoughts. This is how I feel, you know, and I'm um, understanding how each works. But I think over time he realized like, I need to market everything I'm doing. So we're on the road, you know, we do a show the next day we have a recap video of the show to show the people, Hey, we're actually on tour. I could never understand why people would go on tour and they wouldn't market the content of them being on tour. Like you'll literally go to artists, you know, profiles and you'll, they'll be on a world tour and you have no clue. It's the link in their bio is not even the the tour is not even like the website, right. With the tour dates. So maybe they're blessed and all the shows are sold out, or maybe they just don't understand that in order to continue to, to grow your business, you got to put the content out there. And that's going to drive more and more sales and excitement around, you know, what your activity. So that's how we so ended up doing so well on our tickets, you know, our ticket side was marketing each show. So like Russ will go on tour and he would, you know, the LA show, he'd put the LA show out as he's driving to the San Francisco show. Then you do San Francisco, you put out the San Francisco show. So we knew really coming up that we need to have a great videographer who can turn around and edit within 24 hours. And that guy has gone on to do massive things, you know, big director, big producer now doing movies. So we just, we've replicated that model. And now the videographer who's on the road with us is actually a fan. We found him on Twitter and he, he's coming for his first time on the road. I think it's his first time ever being on the road, but we get to give it, you know, some new blood, an opportunity here. And he's going to use the same model that we've been using he's known about it because he's been watching over the years so now when he comes and it's his time to like be in that role which is you know three weeks away he's going to basically shoot it and edit it exactly in the same format as like we've been doing because he can look back and be like oh i can use those 200 other videos as a reference you know there's not a lot of training to be done other than this is where i like to you know i want you to be and this is kind of like how fast you need to turn around the rest you know kind of just follow the the protocol you guys are implementing sort of the forcing function, systems thinking playbook without even knowing it. Bottleneck recognizing here's the thing that's most holding us back. All right, let's create some feedback around just like experimenting, putting lots of stuff out there, seeing what resonates with them, seeing what resonates with us. Okay, this is working. Let's do more of that. This isn't working. Let's iterate on that. Okay, let's leverage. We're already doing these things. How do we get more out of them? We're already doing the show. Let's film it, putting it up. We're already recording. Okay, what else can we do with this? That these principles of thinking of everything as a system, it really, really ties in everything. And it creates infinite opportunities to continue to do, to do more with less, to be doing the right things, to be making sure that you're getting maximum output for minimum input. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's exactly how I see it. Anytime that I can I can do that, it's a win. And I think that's how we approach every situation too. And that comes from experience though. You know, I think that that comes from just like all the years of 
chipping away at this and, and just learning what works and what doesn't work, you create that system for yourself just by default. It's almost like the new default setting, you know, how you approach anything. So yeah, because there's a lot of opportunities that come through my desk that need to be vetted and they're great opportunities, but if it doesn't align with your, your core principles or the brand's integrity, then we don't ever do it. You know, it's like the money has never been the reason why we did something or I've done something or Russ has done something. That's always, I feel like last, that's the last thing. And a lot of it comes from, he's created this really great passive income for himself by putting out such an abundance of music and owning it because there's a lot of money in music when you own it, you know? So like we did a partnership with a label for three albums and we had gone through it and we had, you know, come out the other side, which is rare for a lot of artists. That was our vision going into it. We knew, Hey, this is what we're going to retain our catalog. We're going to go do this deal. And on the other side, we're going to be bigger, you know, from it. So we, we did that and we kind of picked the pieces from there that we, that worked like radio and we hired them ourselves. But when you have the control, like when you, control your own army and your own finances realistically you can really accomplish anything you know like knowing that okay i have this out there that yields this every month well you know for cash flow purposes you can pay for your overhead but you can also now understand like hey well i can do this i can go reinvest it i think a lot of the times artists aren't reinvesting their money back into themselves because they just they don't have it or they just they're not comfortable doing so. Money just means spending or saving and not reinvesting back in your business. But myself and Russ, we both know that that that's what yields more success. It's like investing that we're never afraid to put it back into the, into the business. So we're constantly doing that even at this level. And it, it's a requirement, you know, in order to succeed. I mentioned earlier that Russ is an independent artist. And I know that this is a true rarity, especially when you get to the Billboard Top 100. Obviously, these days, especially, he would have no challenges being signed by a major label. What's the thought process behind remaining independent? Knowing that there's more money in it and more, we have all the control. So we we just don't want anyone to have control of what we're doing. You know, we we want to put something out. We put something out. We want to do something. We do something. But that that came from leverage. So knowing going into the label system, we had 150 songs already that were in the catalog that were generating money every month. And you know, the bigger you get, the bigger the new songs get, the old songs become you know more successful. So there's a lot of money in music when you think about. It. There's on average a million streams pays four grand, right? So if you know you do a billion streams, that's four million dollars. You know. That's from one platform. So there's a lot of money in music if you own it. And the independent model just came from like been doing it, but also knowing that we had all the leverage. And I guess moving forward into this, like into the new world of how things are moving is understanding the game. And we understand that a label is literally just like a, an investor in a sense, but they're more so just a, a corporation who's coming in with money and they're using their money, they are kind of like the government. You don't have the choice where the money goes. Sometimes you do, like we as the people can vote, but like we all pay tax that we can't really decipher exactly where our money is going, you know, specifically. So it's a very similar thing where you're giving away the power and the leverage to these 
corporations, they run the accounting. So all the money goes into them. They pay you out and they only pay out twice a year. We get paid every week, every Friday as an independent artist, depending on which digital aggregator you use to distribute your music, the money is received every Friday. Now it's delayed by like two months. So if you put out a song today, you won't get paid off that for like two and a half months. But that first Friday after the two and a half months, because it takes some time to collect it from the, from the DSPs they call it, like Apple or Spotify, but that's hundred percent your money. So it's like, you know, you get to, you get to see what it's like to collect all the money from around the world instead of just labels do American deals and then they do international deals. So like you might get a better deal in America, but like your international deal might be upside down because, you know, you might not have all the leverage. Like you don't get that many streams in France or the UK, but when you put your song out through like an app, you know, independently, every stream, every sale is yours, you know? So you get to see it all together in one and you get to control the inflow and outflow. So it's like, Hey, if you, you got to pay a producer to produce that beat, right? Well, you got to pay them direct, right? You get to like do the paperwork, do the agreement. And as the money comes in, you can reimburse yourself in real time instead of like waiting six months, hoping that you recouped your advance, you know, and, and a lot of people don't ever get out of that. It's like a trap, but yeah, the, the, you have all the leverage as an independent artist. And that's the other thing I, I even wanted to talk with you about. It's like, we all have the same access. There are independent platforms where you can pay to play, right? So you can pay 10, 12 bucks to release your song. It's everywhere. And it has nothing, they have nothing to do with your success. The sole reason you're successful is the person behind it. You know, you create the magic. You either have millions of followers, right? Or you had you had a viral moment on TikTok or whatever it is, but you're the so you're the source when it comes to like, hey guys, here's my music. Please listen. The distributor has no nothing. They have no resources or power. They might, you know, say that they do sometimes, but they don't. All they are is just literally like they distribute to all the stores. So I like to compare like Shopify as like everyone, Shopify has millions of stores that shops that like you Shopify, right? And some are massively successful. Some do hundred million a year, some do one million a year, some do 10 grand, some do a thousand a month, a thousand a year, a hundred a year. You know, we all pay $69.99 for that monthly, you know, we all give 3% of our sales to Shopify, right? So the future of music, and it's currently out there, it exists, and we use a platform that's basically the Shopify music, where we're all artists, we're all our own labels, right? We all have the same access. So we can all just pay to play. I can pay someone $69 a year, and they let me release unlimited music, right? They're on all the stores or everywhere. Now it's up to me to have the relationship with Spotify or with Apple. Just like in business, I can have a shop, I can sell clothing, but it's up to me to have the relationship with this person to be able to get the distribution or for me to be able to go, I need to have the relationship with an influencer to be able to go market my product, right? So it's very much like we're in the game where we all have access and everyone is pretending that they don't. Everyone's giving away 100%, 80%, 90% of their business for nothing. You know, so we noticed that very early on. And that was one of the things that we wanted to really just like, that's our most prized possession is that the consciousness of knowing the leverage that we have, we create the music, we create the art, we have the fan base, right? So all we need to do is find some sort of platform that allows us to get to the fans without, you know, losing an arm and a leg. So we found 
a few that we've worked with along the way. We invested in one that we thought was like the best and they're tech-based. So they're like, we provide you with the tools. We'll give you the pipeline and you can build your own interface on top of our our platform. So that's what we've done. And Russ just launched his own label and he's using them, like their tech as the back end. And so now we're giving our own artists you know, a dashboard, a platform. They can go to diamondrecords.com. They can log in. They can see everything in real time, their analytics. They can upload and release their song themselves. So like, we want to be able to give the next generation of artists the same tools and apply the same consciousness that we currently have to like their business. You know, like we want to do artist-friendly deals and that's one of our like future goals. I know I went off on a little tangent, but so good. Point is that yeah. we, all, we all have the same access and we're, we're pretending that we don't, you know? Understanding the leverage points, as you said, and where you bring the value, man, I mean, so good. And I, I just want to acknowledge your openness and generosity with sharing that. It was really, really cool to witness. I don't want you to keep the MBA hanging. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I have two more quick questions for you and then I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. So you've been working with Russ a number of years now. You've toured with him. You've been together for long periods of time. What's one big lesson that comes to mind that you've learned from seeing the way that he works, seeing the way that he lives? Interesting. So like, I would say transparency for me and him, it's like, loyalty is everything and integrity is everything. And we're super, I learned from him, right. But he's super principle based. So knowing that everything kind of has to be an open book, he's very hands-on with his business. And I, when I train younger managers and I give people advice, like if I'm mentoring an artist or, or a manager, I'm always letting them know, like, first and foremost, that this is, you gotta be an open book. So when you receive information, it can't be a game of telephone where someone tells you one thing and you regurgitate it out how you see, you know, through your lens. My success as being a manager really comes from creating this safe space of like, hey, I've even done it with Russ where we share an email, you know, so all the inquiries that come in, we kind of, he sees as they get vetted out, you know, so like you asking me like strategy wise, like how do you do all the manage these different things? Well, a lot of it is, I'm having an open book with my clients. So he, he knows all the things that are going on and it's not like anything's hidden. So that takes the anxiety away from him of like, Oh shit, you know, like maybe I got to call him and ask him all these different questions, or maybe he's only looking out for himself. No, it's like that shit was dead from the beginning. You know, like it's strictly about his interests and not mine. My interests are secondary. My interests are when I'm home, with my family, you know, or like how I invest my money or what I do outside of this, right? When it comes to him, it's always in his best interest and it's a complete open book. And that's what has created such a healthy relationship. And I think for other managers and other businessmen or CEOs, but this is how I would, you know, recommend it's like the info comes in, I then receive it, I can vet it, right? But I articulate it back. It's just a flow. And sometimes, you have to play the bad guy too. The, the, you know, it's, it's good cop, bad cop. Because if your client wants something reciprocated, and maybe that's not who I am. Like maybe, you know, I was saying to you, it's like one of my biggest my lessons learned is saying no, and it's like compartmentalizing things. So if your client wants something done, right, they might be angry about it. Whatever you can do it in your own way, right? But you got to take that information, and you got to can't be a game of telephone. You got to send it right back. 
it could be in your own way, but it's a lot of the times it's both ways. So it's like receiving information from both ends have to kind of go right back out. And sometimes you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. You know, it might be uncomfortable to say no to someone. It could be millions of dollars on the line. It could be relationship on the line, but I serve my client and clients. And it's just like, that's where I draw the line. It's always like, that's it, you know, loyalty and principle base. And it's like, I'm always fighting for his best interest. So I think that answers that. Love it. Last question for you. So you broke in in the music industry, no experience, no business being there. You're now you're doing manufacturing, obviously no manufacturing experience. What advice would you have for someone who's in a similar position? They're looking to break into a new career, a new industry, but they don't feel like they have that relevant experience. What advice would you give them before they take the leap? Start dreaming, start dreaming and dream big and understand that all the, you have all the power, like it all starts from within you. So I'm super confident in the fact that all the information exists out there. And that could be like, you might not be speaking to the right people. You might not be Googling the, the right, the right information that you're trying to obtain, but it exists. So a lot of it is just being comfortable, being uncomfortable, understanding that you need to dream big and you're not going to get anywhere unless you have persistency. Like it could be anything, man. It's like, even as an investor, I find myself like, you have to be persistent with this, you know, just because you think something is going to take off, doesn't mean it's going to take off. Like you might, you might have to go through the storm. So just be comfortable being uncomfortable and understanding that's like, you know, you might fail and you might get knocked down, but if you get back up, anything is possible. So really, really harness that and tap into that, that it's like, I came from nothing personally, you know, I really had no resources around me, but it really stemmed from my drive to accomplish my dream. And I've, my dreams change all the time, but it started off of like, okay, I'm like in my mom's basement right now and it's dark and I can't, no one around, no one in my family's an entrepreneur, but I know one guy who is, you know what I mean? It starts from just like, it could be like, I look up to an artist, you know, it's like my favorite producer at the time was this guy, Scott Storch. Why I loved him, he was like, he's the science behind Dr. Dre's Chronic 2001, which is like my favorite album ever. He played the piano on Still Dre, all these different things. Fast forward, no joke, this is a friend of mine now, right? I've worked with him for many years. I know him really well, but that would never have happened if I didn't, like, I wasn't like masterminding it to happen. I was delusional where I was like, I'm going to be friends with him. You know, I'm going to be in the studio with him. And no joke, that, that's a reality. It came to life. It took some time, but I'm not surprised that it happened because that's always, that's always what I wanted to happen. I even told him too, when I, you know, when I was with him, it's like, and I think Russ did as well, because he's his favorite producer, but it's like, it's surreal where like the things you had dreamed of become a reality. And I'm the testament for anyone else to like, that's possible. You know, it's like, and I have so much more that I want to accomplish that I'm like dreaming of right now. And I got living the dream tatted on me just so I can wake up every day and see, like, have gratitude, understanding that this is where I'm at currently in my life, blessed, but like, there's so much more to accomplish. And knowing that looking back, like, I would never have thought that I'd be here. To, like, I did in my mind, but like, in a reality, my God, I got to pinch myself, man. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. So I use that. That gives me confidence every day and how I move and, you know, and my visions, like my dreams, like. I have some crazy ass dreams. You know, like I told you, I think I told you at dinner, this was another thing is that I wanted to make a movie. 
Yeah. So like ever since that time that we talked in December, I mean, this is you, right? So it's like, you bring that out of me because I, I wasn't thinking like that. Like I wasn't thinking like, this is what I want to accomplish this year. And even if I don't, it's giving me this, like, I'm always referencing back to our conversation and I'm always like, I'm making the right steps in order to accomplish what I said I would accomplish, you know? So ever since that dinner, like all these crazy things have happened for me, like manifested that happened. Like I got with a production company who is like, does this, you know what I mean? Like they go get the financing for the movies. They, they have the screenwriters who will take your idea and, and develop it for you. Now it really comes down to like, I need to secure my idea. So I met with the people who I have to secure the idea with, you know, make sure I can like do that before taking the next steps. I did that already. So it's like, I've never made a movie in my life. You know, my goal is to be a producer on this film that I was telling you about. And it might take me years to accomplish, but I already see myself sitting at the Oscars. Like no joke. I see myself with my mom. I just, I know it's going to happen. So now I just have to reverse engineer it. I feel that so much. And thank you for sharing. It's it's really inspiring. And yeah, if you're listening to this, you're an artist, you're building a brand, you're trying to do something ambitious. There's a lot to learn here in terms of knowing what you want, working backwards and taking those steps to get there that you truly can achieve anything. Milan, thank you so much. Again, truly an honor and, you know, feel very grateful to be able to get you on the stage. I know it was uncomfortable, but really glad you were here with us and for everything you shared. Yeah, thank you for having me because like, you know, this was not that necessarily uncomfortable, but it's like you got this out of me. I'm, I'm so, I wouldn't have done this with anyone else. So I was like, I'm glad that like my first one was with you. And yeah, I just love the conversation. Let's continue it. Let's, let's do this another time. Well, absolutely. I mean, guys, check out Russ on the Journey is Everything tour coming to a city near you. I know I'm personally really pumped to be in the audience for that Hollywood Bowl tour. So, yeah, coming to Austin as well on the 15th. Beautiful. Let's do it. Yes. All right, guys, this has been another episode of Forcing Function Hour. Thank you so much for joining us once again and talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Forcing Function Hour. At Forcing Function, we teach performance architecture. We work with a select group of 12 executives and investors to teach them how to multiply their output, perform at their peak, and design a life of freedom and purpose. Make sure to subscribe to Forcing Function Hour for more great episodes, or go to forcingfunctionhour.com to sign up for our newsletter so you can join us live. Music